Well, um, thank you very much for having me here to speak to you in the first place. Um, I, I want to do three things today. Um, firstly, I'm, I want to offer a, a brief introduction to the extraordinary changes in the courts of Cambodia, um, which I'm is going to be able to fill in all the introductions that I made in this introduction. But I want to introduce it as practicing this institutionalised form of memory politics, a, a way of governing memory. I want to summarise roughly you know, what it's trying to do or what it's believed to be doing. What it's believed to um, be able to achieve, to show how the court is justified or rationalised through particular legal and therapeutic tropes that demand confrontations with memories of political violence, but are selective in doing so. And it's selective in the way this is formalised. The second point I want to raise today is to discuss an example of how we can visibly see the juncture of this um, you know, retributive legalism with a, a national politics of reconciliation through um, some ECCC outreach materials. Um, I want to introduce these materials as a particular form of um, a technology of memory. I want to emphasise that, that outreach is a crucial point of mediation between the court and the Cambodian public. third point I want to, I want to make today is to, um, to consider an example of how the courts devolve responsibility for outreach on the, um, about the importance of the court's work to legitimise civil society actors that draw upon particular bodies of expert knowledge, specifically on trauma and therapy, as a means of knowing suffering and in order to encourage participation in the court process. And I want to show the ways in which these ideas, you know, transitional justice as legalism and therapy, are com commensurable to this distinct politics of state-sponsored mass exculpation that the court has enacted. So, the extreme champs in the courts of Cambodia. The court's notable, obviously, is a recent, um, it's one of a recent wave of mixed tribunals, um, or mixed bodies, mixed international and domestic bodies, tasked with confronting legacies of mass political violence. So the other notable examples we can think about would be Sierra Leone and East Timor. So established in 2006 to prosecute crimes perpetrated by senior leaders and those most responsible within the Khmer Rouge regime between 75 and 79. And without kind of rehearsing history too much, yeah, under the Khmer Rouge, an estimated 1.7 million Cambodians died the result of starvation, disease and execution. So the court's drawing upon both international and domestic law um, to prosecute you know, crimes against humanity, <coughs> crimes, um, genocide, as well as crimes defined under Cambodian law, like torture and homicide. Now I say that the ECC enacts this form of memory politics because of the way it calls our attention to some events but not to others. Not to others. Um, animating and licensing particular subjectivities um, or particular sets of victims and perpetrators and I'd argue it does this in particular ways. So firstly, the, the personal jurisdiction of the court is restricted obviously to senior leaders and those most responsible. Um, and in a sense, it avoids stigmatising you know, the vast numbers of lower-level commanders who may have been involved in the perpetration of trusty in Cambodia. And this is an imperative of the Cambodian state and um, was a condition for the establishment of the ECC. Um, and it's, I mean, we actually know this is characteristic of many you know, um, prosecutions or international prosecutions, you know, Nuremberg, in principle, example. Um, and also, notwithstanding the very resonant point that it, it could also be as much about the Cambodian government protecting its own interests. So, there's an important politics concerning the way the court acknowledges particular specific victim groups. So, for example, some ethnic minorities like the Khmer Krong, the Khmer Krong, um, not being included in the court process or recognised at least as civil parties, which is one mechanism through which the court has the capacity to offer symbolic and moral reparations to victim, uh, victim groups. Um, and this is despite extensive evidence of their persecution under the Khmer Rouge. Second substantive point is the way that the court limits its jurisdiction or time frame 
the temporal jurisdiction of the 75-79 period. And this was a key condition for the establishment of the court by both the Cambodian government and for the international community. So, I mean, we're thinking Cambodian history over the past 50 years has broadly been characterised by conflict and serious abuses of basic human rights. I mean, it occurred both immediately before and after the Khmer Rouge were in power. And notably, I'd point to illegal US carpet bombing of Cambodia in the early 70s. The conservative estimates suggested it killed as many as 150,000 people. Use of forced labour by the Cambodian government following the removal of the Khmer Rouge in the 1980s and the continued Khmer Rouge perpetrated massacres of civilians, particularly against ethnic Vietnamese, throughout again the 1980s, a period in which the Khmer Rouge still had held the Cambodian seat at the UN General Assembly. So the point here that I'm trying to make is to emphasise the contingency of the jurisdiction established at the court. So it's, it's telling a particular story in particular ways and it's emerged subject to particular hierarchies of power. So in this sense, I'd suggest that if the jurisdiction of the ECC is contingent, or at least emerges through negotiations within particular social and political contexts, then our ensuing notions of what justice and reconciliation mean should probably be considered in the same way as these contestable sites. And this isn't to say that the abuses that I've, I've listed above were, were more or less or you know, equally severe as those suffered under the Khmer Rouge, but rather I'm, I'm trying to elucidate a politics of acknowledgement here in the way that the court attends to some things but not others. Given that the, the Khmer Rouge were in power 30 years ago, much, much of the literature on Cambodia has been concerned with this question of why now? Um, and without skirting around this, I've, I've mentioned that Cambodia endured this protracted civil war, which only ended in 1999, and it's very difficult to prosecute when these things are going on. But moreover, the point um, remains, or that needs to be emphasised, that the momentum for this um, internationalised prosecution only built up during the latter half of the 1990s a specific backdrop to this to, was the, you know, the history of prosecutions at international tribunals in Yugoslavia and Rwanda, um, and more broadly the growth of what Claire Moon has described as the transitional justice industry, a filthy industry that we're all complicit in sustaining. <laughs> so this momentum resulted in you know, protracted negotiations between the UN and the Cambodian government between 1997 and 2003 over the composition of the court, and specifically the balance between international and domestic positions. Um, and this is before its actual establishment in 2006. Um, but it's worth noting here that you know, research groups like DCCAM um, were at work organising evidence and gathering testimony in the early 90s. And of course, evidence from sites like Twelfth the provincial mass graves um, have a much, kind of, um, much longer history to this. And I'm sure Melanie can talk about this um, a little bit more. And, you know, but I'd, I'd at least suggest that the production of legal knowledge and perhaps even evidence you know, in itself has specific histories. Now, I mentioned the tensions during the negotiations between um, the international and domestic makeup of the court. Um, this issue has obviously attracted a lot of attention recently. Um, it hasn't been problematised this conflict between the political interests of the royal government of Cambodia in restricting prosecutions to a handful of people and the purportedly apolitical efforts to re you know, ensure the realisation of international standards in the legal process. And this is clearly a crucial issue, particularly given uh, the premature closure of investigations into case three, which would have prosecuted more than just the five currently actually indicted at the court. Um, but it's not something I, I can explore really in any detail or with much authority today. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate concerns about the, the realisation of international standards, but I'd also like to probably point to the way in which some of the effects of this discourse, you know, to cast Cambodia as this almost dysfunctional and pathologised um, political space, you know, it's almost incapable of responding to the past in its, um, autonomously in its own kind of transparent manner. And perhaps even a more critical reading would think about the international standards as a form of hierarchy that work less, as Said explains in Orientalism, as a veridical discourse, 
in which claims should be proven or refuted as much as a means of cementing the particular power dynamics involved in defining those standards. Now, this hints at the way that particular forms of knowledge can serve to generate pathologised images and understandings of the state of political culture and memory in Cambodia. And proponents of the court draw upon two vocabularies that are prominent within, and obviously not confined to, the practice and scholarship of transitional justice. So firstly, this um, universalist retributive narrative that demands punishment for those that perpetrate human rights abuses is particularly visible. And aside from providing justice for the victims, they hitch this against uh, the idea that prosecutions of KR figures will enable the realisation of broader governmental ends, um, such as you know, democratisation, um, contributing to the rule of law, respect for human rights, preventing the recurrence of such crimes, or challenging an apparent culture of impunity. And secondly, perhaps more surprisingly around the ECC, therapeutic rationales have been mobilised by partner organisations of the court, and you know, these demand intervention on the basis that confronting the past is a necessary means of integrating trauma. Some court staff um, have even justified the importance of the ECCC on the process on the basis that Cambodians widely suffer PTSD. Alex Bates spoke at a seminar at LSE uh, you know, some months ago and he said that 99% of Cambodians have PTSD, which is slightly problematic, right? <laughs> okay, but you know, either way, these rationales are you know, specifically ameliorative, linear claims that, that invite a departure from a particular site of malady, a particular state of malady. So the, the framework that I'm drawing on here is, you know, is informed by Foucault's later work on governmentality. Um, and the suggestion that I'm making is that, that, or Foucault was making, is that particular bodies of knowledge here, forms of rationality embodied and authoritative within transitional justice and human rights, problematise social phenomenon in particular ways that imply and give rise to specific strategies and programmes of intervention through particular forms of political technology. In a recent paper, Healing Past Violence, Traumatic Assumptions and Therapeutic Interventions in War and Reconciliation, Claire Moon has discussed the rise of therapeutic strategies and authoritative framework in post-conflict governance, specifically around tr uh, truth commissions. Also noting that some therapeutic assumptions are in the process of being consolidated into new human rights. And Claire's point is that as a form of post-conflict governance, the rise of therapeutic assumptions and the strategy, strategies also bounds this proliferation of, um, bounds with proliferation of amnesty agreements in the way that they um, supposedly negate the need for, um, for prosecutions. So punishment and healing you know, are made to stand in tension as more, more responses to atrocity. So how is it that we can see these, um, these two imperatives operating in tandem around the, the Cambodian process at least, which seems on the surface principally about punishment, or at least at its centre principally about punishment. And crucially, I would argue that both the legalist and therapeutic lenses operate ways of knowing about the past that directly imply the need to intervene, firstly. Now, whether intervention on the past is justified on the basis of rule of law building, improving human rights cultures, or engendering catharsis, memory or the past is imagined as a root problem that must be remedied. So at the same time, both legalist and therapeutic human rights vocabularies are, are subservient to and operate within parameters divine, defined by the basic interests of the state. This is crucial. So exculpation of the many and the powerful. So whilst I'm interested here in the ways, um, various ways in which these governmental rationalities generate programmes that look to ameliorate produce or reconstitute the post-conflict subject, I stress, perhaps in an unfaithful way to some Foucault readers, um, that more singular forms of coercive power ascribed to the Cambodian state are still very visible. Okay, um, now, 
Both examples that I'm, I'm going to be talking about today have been um, really prominent within outreach work for the court. Um, outreach has been positioned as this pivotal mediating force with the, the Cambodian uh, public and is, is considered by both the court and NGO partner groups as a key means of securing the legitimacy of the court among the Cambodian public because, you know, I mean, acknowledged at least by some of the, 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 you know, the knowledge of the court is at least not, um, not uniform and some people are suspicious of its work. Um, now, the ameliorative rationales that are deployed to legitimate the need for the ECCC are in, aptly encapsulated in the, the text of this post slogan. I feel you're going to be so sick of this. I talk about this at length <laughs> in the chapter, actually. So, moving forward through justice. This is, um, this is part of the court's national publicity campaign. I want to suggest that the poster captures this juncture of a progressive legal narrative in the interest of the state. And at the same time, I'm suggesting this is a technology of memory that invites Cambodians to rethink the, the, you know, their paths in particular ways. So we can see here that there's a, a neat transition is depicted from the period of Khmer Rouge control to the, to the courtroom. The, the central figure, a senior Khmer Rouge leader, is in the first instance depicted addressing an audience from a position of power, then to a position of vulnerability in the lower image, as the accused. So this realignment of power is, is articulated specifically in relation to the positioning of the audience. So in these two images, um, the associated symbols of authority shift. So from a portrait of a senior Khmer Rouge leader on the wall of the first to so the national flag and stewardship of the courtroom by a judge in the latter. The centrality of the national flag in the second image is important because it connotes national unity, which is implied as absent in the first. We can see symbols that connote both nations and nation and principles of, um, of human rights and law, the rule of law, the judge, presented as almost coextensive. So the, the arrow between the images suggests continuity in the audience body. In the first image, the audience appears homogenous and generalised, dressed in the black coat clothing that was uniform under the Khmer Rouge, and the chequered Kramer scarves, while the audience in the, the courtroom appears diversified and differentiated. So this transition between the images makes a claim about the culpability or the possible culpability of the senior leader in the dock, with the attached caption stating that only senior leaders and those most responsible will be prosecuted. So the post is quite ambivalent about the culpability of lower-level Khmer Rouge because it's not clear whether this audience body is intended to represent those ordinary Khmer Rouge soldiers referred to in the second caption. So the image can be read as suggesting a symmetry between the two audiences, appearing to communicate lower-level Khmer Rouge as part of the audience, blurring them into a broader victim group. This, this reflects, at least for me, the politics of national reconciliation and retribution that are working in tandem with the ECC today. Um, it articulates, on the one hand, a de facto amnesty for lower-level Khmer Rouge, whilst on the other, a frame through which the Cambodian viewer can constitute themselves within this narrative. Finally, the, the poster is also reflected the ways in which the, the court presents what, what I'd really very crudely call a kind of a spatial doubleness through the fact that you know, institutionally there are, there are factual and forensic um, discourse and discourses that govern its work and positions that govern its work. And then more broadly, there are kind of public and contextual, um, there's a public and contextual story that's being told um, and being received. So within the courtroom, specifically narrow subjectivities of perpetrator and victim were animated and performed, and outside the courtroom, a more generalised national construction of all Cambodians as victims of the Khmer Rouge's licence. So it shows the way in which um, the court is imagined as, as almost acting on two planes, specifically institutionally narrow space, and then um, across the national community as well. This doubleness is, is important um, for me because the court has devolved much of its outreach to um, NGO partner groups, and when you, when you spend time in Cambodia, you quickly hear comments from NGO staff that civil society groups are the public sector in Cambodia. 
This could also actually gesture back to Foucault's governmentality framework, and we see the operation and exercise of power in at least empirically more diverse spaces than may be expected in a framework that rests on a kind of binary antagonism between civil society and the state. Importantly, the development of outreach to NGO, um, outreach for, um, among NGOs enables um, complementary expert expertise to be brought to bear on the outreach process. And you know, many of these NGOs are domestic groups. They rely on international funding, so they're, they're embedded in broader internationalised networks of expectation and knowledge. They also rely heavily on, on um, human rights recoveries, at least when conducting outreach. So this handbook that I've um, I just, just brought up here was funded by the German Development Service, and it was designed by a local Cambodian NGO, and I quote, The main purpose of this handbook is to provide an introduction to and basic knowledge of a complex psychological issue in an understandable way, because the extraordinary changes in the courts of Cambodia, informally the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, is finally getting underway, many non-governmental organisations and many Cambodians are becoming more engaged in the process of national reconciliation and development, and therefore have to deal with many traumatised people. Page 13. So first and foremost, it situates the court as, as facilitating reconciliation, and encountering traumatised people is, is the problematic in this regard. You know, on the basis of my, my fieldwork, my observations with one such um, NGO group, I mean, a key point, uh, the key point I found is that you know, these resources, and there were um, more limited resources in this regard as opposed to the UCC poster, were directed specifically towards um, former Khmer Rouge communities. Um, well, I, I really like the trauma tree slide. I think it's fantastic. The trauma tree. I mean, it's kind of flashbacks, decision-making... <laughs> Overly vigilant, emotional outbursts, increased drinking. That's just finishing a PhD, isn't it? Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a bit too familiar to some of the yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the point I want to make here is that you know, there's a dovetailing legal and, and therapeutic knowledge, and it, it's important to stress again the great lengths to which the court and NGOs have taken up the challenge of articulating lower-level Khmer Rouge as victims of the regime. Now, how does this dovetailing work? Now. Summerfield, um, Derek Summerfield has argued, and this has been developed by Claire Moon, um, that, that to identify as traumatised is to identify as a victim, and as such to be morally exculpated. So trauma provides a framework for understanding memories of conflict that, that becomes paramount. And as Moon has argued, it displaces traditional moral orders concerning punishment. Crucially, linking this back to the, the de facto amnesty enacted by the ECCC, um, we can see how the articulation of lower-level Khmer Rouge is potentially traumatised works to fill a moral lacuna over the, the culpability of low-level Khmer Rouge that's left unspecified or unexplained by the court. And I know lots of people would probably argue that that's not what the court's meant to be doing anyway, but that's what I'd suggest. Clemens' um, paper notes that one of the ways that the therapeutic order operates is by individualising suffering. And we can see this with the trauma tree. This, this text offers a means of, of doing this specifically through self-identification with particular symptoms of trauma. And again, this is a very specific technology of memory that invites subjects by their own means, to redefine the meaning and imperatives of memory. So one effect of this is that the reorientation of memories of conflicts and widespread political violence through the lens of personal trauma. Secondly, trauma becomes a kind of catch-all frame for, for any suffering experienced during the wider civil war that's not within the remit of the court's temporal jurisdiction. Now, the handbook's quite ambiguous, actually, about um, what events kind of generated trauma, um, you know, talking about like, whether it was the civil war or, you know, the Khmer Rouge period itself. Um, and again, I, I'd suggest that this, this shows a dovetailing of, um, or at least a, a complementarity of legal and therapeutic knowledge. It's also worth suggesting um, that and this fits into a broader trend to do with the medicalisation of um, human suffering in post-conflict um, contexts. 
even more explicitly here, you, that you should you know, uh, tick boxes to self-diagnose as, as traumatised is, is again a powerful technology of memory. So self-understanding as a trauma sufferer is offered as the principal means of knowing the past. The effects here are crucial because even current social problems that in themselves are, are worthy of scrutiny as kind of human rights issues um, are connected to particular histories through genres of traumatic memory, again implying the, the engagement with the past is a panacea for, for those ills. Um, more broadly, one of the key themes running through this text, the, the handbook in general, is, is the importance of confronting and reintegrating tra um, trauma. Um, the text lists various coping strategies that, that it advocates as providing catharsis in this regard, and these are quite interesting because they, they evidence a kind of um, a localization of the trauma framework, so it advocates meditation and breathing exercises, um, dialogue with um, Achar's uh, community leaders and religious leaders. Um, and I'd add here that the, the handbook and the previous poster are clearly not unproblematic in doing so. You know, the fact that these responses are, um, to political violence communicated through cartoon imagery is quite infantilising. Um, I mean, importantly, outreach events and, and public education seminars that disseminate this text, you know, one of the coping strategies advocated explicitly, and this is also by the Transcultural Psychosocial Organisation of Cambodia, is participation in the court process as a witness or complainant. Um, in, a, in the narrow sense of how the court operates. And the, the text itself also stresses the importance of participation in the court process remotely as a spectator, because it's also broadcast on TV and radio. And again, broadly, I suggest this is because um, the court is imagined as this, this national confrontation with the past. It's about a body politic as well. So we can see how the individual and the national body, each imagined as traumatised, is asked to confront memory through the, um, the court process. So just to conclude, um, I think the first point is that, that, that both legal and therapeutic knowledge frame the past in particular ways, and I, I suggest that these um, imply the need for intervention. Um, specifically, the, the dovetailing of these knowledges provided lenses through which to act on memory, and the, these knowledges can be seen to be operating in tandem around the court process in a kind of reflexive, mutually authenticating way. And they, they provide ways of knowing the past that sustain the importance of the, the ECCC. The second and final point is that um, concepts that can, that can constitute at least our, some of our language of um, transitional justice, retribution, justice, trauma, reconciliation and catharsis, you know, should continue to be rethought, um, rethought or reconsidered beyond a kind of a neat opposition between, uh, on the one hand, kind of punitive, on the other, restorative orders. I've tried to show how they can materialise quite powerfully at the same time in, in complementary ways. Moreover, whilst these agendas have been principally thought, thought about as either um, you know, challenging the power of state authorities or offering redress to memories of past abu abuses, I'm, I'm at least trying to advocate a more cautious stance here, that they can, to some extent, at least sustain and legitimate particular power dynamics. In this case, I mean, that's most visible with the mass exculpation of lower-level Khmer Rouge. So we can see that the transitional justice rationales and concepts are seen here as operating still subservient to particular political interests that legitimate rather than challenge power. Right, thanks, Peter.